Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're talking about the value of being misunderstood with Ziad Mara and his latest book, Judged. Ziad Mara is the author of Intimacy, Deception and the Happiness Paradox and is president of Global Publishing at Sage Publications. And Ziad's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Judged. The value of being misunderstood. Ziad, welcome back to Little Atoms after a very long interval. Thanks for having me back, Neil. Tell me what the idea behind Judged is, first of all. I suppose it's uh, an attempt to think about how much more complicated than we are um, or than we like to appear to be. I feel that we need to be aware that judgment is much more ubiquitous and surrounding us more than we might realise and that when we're doing it we're quite unreliable and so I'm interested in how we live well in the light of those facts. And was there any particular incident that happened to you that sort of kicked the idea for this book off? Uh, There was definitely a nice nugget that happened which actually was something that my daughter Charlotte did when she was 12. She was answering a questionnaire and the questions were fairly typical stuff that a kid might answer. What are your pets? Who are your friends? Etc. There was one question which she answered in a surprising way and the question was if you had a superpower what would it be? And rather than answer conventionally with Herculean strength or um, the ability to fly. She said, I would like the power to make awkward situations go away. And when I read that, it brought me up short. It reminded me of a thing that I've long wondered on, which is how potent the word awkward is. It's got a sort of furtive force to it. And I think what it does is it clues us into the fact that we are almost always on guard, even if we don't like to think of it that way. I think we often perceive ourselves as sort of atoms or islands, but actually we're genuinely enmeshed in the gaze of others. And the awkwardness almost gives you a, like a warning light that something might go wrong in a social situation and that might cause social pain. So um, I think that thought was one that I guess triggered the um, at least the opening part of the book where I'm really saying we're more enmeshed in others' judgment than we tend to like to think. And we'll come back to the idea of social pain in a little while but before we do one thing that we have to mention before we get going is that all of this idea of you know judgment, social awkwardness and things have have massively exacerbated in the last few years due to due to the internet haven't they? 
Yeah, the the digital age has hugely magnified um, these issues. I, it's not that they've conjured them up. I think the issues of us being a sort of hypersocial animal, very concerned about how we're judged in the eyes of others, is longstanding. It's a fundamental feature of who we are. But it's been sort of supercharged by the sort of digital lenses. Now there are so many um, metrics. I heard the word recently, metricide, that we can live or die by by these measures that either bolster or reduce our self-esteem. Um, there are so many ways to count followers and downloads and viewers and likes and sort of tests of adequacy of various kinds. That's in the same way that our ancient appetites for fatty foods and sweets are fed by consumer culture. Um, I think our ancient preoccupation with judgment has been um, uh, massively exaggerated by the digital turn. So let's talk about awkwardness, embarrassment and you know social judgment. We're social animals and... There's an idea in this section, the sociometer, which I wanted to talk about. Tell me what that is. Yeah, that comes from a social psychologist called Mark Leary, who effectively says that we are constantly tracking our sense of sort of credibility in the eyes of others. It's a sort of a credibility ometer, if you like. Is our self-esteem on the way up or on the way down in the light of others? And, and he's sort of coined that phrase because it's sort of always on, even if we're not always conscious of the fact that it is. So we often persist under this sort of imaginary world where we're sort of acting individually, but actually um, we're reading constantly whether our reputation is on the rise or on the fall, and that's what he was describing. Um, I want to talk about social emotions and, and you know how they you know how we use them to guide our way through the you know the social world, but also I guess you know things like you know, when we talk about social emotions, we're talking about things like you know like blushing, hmm. and I guess to what evolutionary advantage these things might have been. Do you know what I mean? What how have we developed these you know these ways of navigating the social world? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. There, I mean, there are a lot of basic emotions that we all sort of um, <clears throat> come with and sort of have um, expressed very early on, like sort of happiness and sadness and anger and so on. But the social emotions, which sort of tend to emerge a bit later, which range through sort of embarrassment or shame or guilt, um, love, have a sort of, you know, according to the evolutionists at least, have something of being guarantors of our sincerity. So if we are hypersocial animals um, who need to trust and to be trusted in return if we're going to cooperate to a full effect, we need ways of signalling um, whether we are accountable to each other in that kind of way. And the suggestion is that the social emotions evolved so as to provide those guarantees. If there are things that we don't have total control over, which convey the fact that we are sincerely worried about how we look in each other's eyes, um, that helps us be more trustworthy. So that's that's sort of part of the reason why the social emotions um, appear to have developed. You mentioned like, guilt and shame, more extreme versions of awkwardness and embarrassment. And you talk in the book about, well, I guess I want to know what the difference is. And you talk particularly about the idea of a, a shame culture versus a guilt culture. What, what do you mean by those two? Or, or mm. what do those two things mean? Mm. Yeah, so shame and guilt typically differ in relation to how the the sense of something going wrong applies. So, you know that phrase, blame the sin, not the sinner. Well, the blaming of the sin is the thing that might engender guilt. If you've transgressed in some way, and I'm, and I'm sort of accusing you of that, if I'm focusing on the thing that you've done, then you might be inclined to feel guilty and to wonder about how to correct it, if you agree. Whereas if I'm blaming the sinner, it's not just the thing that you've done, it's something about the essence of you, a thing that will be true 
through thick and thin, whether I can disconnect you from the particular activity, then that gives you, instead of the urge to repair, something around, you know, people use the phrase, I wanted the earth to swallow me up, a, a sense of a stigmatized self. And I think quite often people talk about shame cultures versus guilt cultures um, to describe whether a very sort of collective orientation around face makes you orientated more to feel shame. I'm not only ashamed of the sins I've committed, but if anyone related to me commits a sin, I carry that stigma too. Versus guilt culture, where it's much more of a sort of sort of individualized sense of agency for what you can then be held to account. But I think it's a bit overcooked. I think that actually, um, even in cultures where shame isn't very explicit, I think we're equally prone to it, let's say, in, in the UK or the US, etc. Um, I want to move us on to the rise and fall of the idea of reputations. Mm. The idea of a reputation seems like, you know, it seems like something from a Jane Austen novel and not something that we're that bothered about now. Like, you know, I see a figure like Boris Johnson or someone who does seem like, a, you know, a cad out of a, a 19th century novel and seems entirely untroubled. His career is, you know, entirely untroubled by whatever he does. And I guess, of course, what I want to get us on to talking about more, which, again, is linked to this idea of the uh, of the social media world as well, is the ineffable rise of Donald Trump, mm. who, again, is a man who... His reputation in that way that we used to think of a reputation mm. is sort of, like, meaningless. Yeah. Well, um, one way to think of reputation, because in a way what I've described about awkwardness and avoiding embarrassment, that's the kind of that requires impression management of one kind or another. And we need to find ways to avoid the pitfalls of being judged ill in the near term. If we can manage impressions well, but do so well enough that it extends sort of over time and across audiences, then you're moving from the sort of that micro impression management into the more reputational mode. And the reputational mode is a complex one. You you kind of have different different poles. Um, you can either have you can have reputations around um, being sort of skillful or competent or cool or witty. You can also have um, reputations that are more around um, being sort of well-meaning, well-intentioned, kind-spirited, well-motivated. And actually, there's quite a lot of research that shows that we almost are often choosing between those two kinds of reputations. Ideally, what you want to pull off is some combination of the two. But actually, that's very hard to do. They're quite sort of um, in tension with each other. Quite often you find, for example, people say things like, oh, I'm hopeless at maths or whatever. And by sort of giving up something on the skill side, they sort of beef up um, the sense of being maybe warm hearted, etc. Um, and by the same token, you can sort of do a sort of shoulder shrugging. What do I care about what other people think as a way of seeming sort of powerful or, or kind of in self-command? So I think there are sort of trade offs that people go for. There are very few people who can pull off the category of both being seen as skillful and competent on the one hand and as um, warm-hearted and sort of well-motivated on the other. And there's an extra twist in this, which is it's hard for anyone to combine the two. It's even harder for women in particular. And there's a extraordinary um, piece of research based around a Harvard business case describing um, the story of Heidi Roizen. She's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur 
who um, very successful, um, so much so that this Harvard business case got written up about her. But um, some people at Harvard decided an experiment would be in order, which is they taught that case study about Heidi Roizen to her students and then um, took the same case study and taught, uh, taught it to another batch of students, but changing her name from Heidi to Howard. That's all that was changed about the case study and then asking the students what they thought of the entrepreneur in question. And in both cases, on the poll of sort of competence and skill, they were rated equally highly. Um, Heidi and Howard are seen as very skillful, very effective um, entrepreneurs. But on the dimension of sort of likability or warmth, a big difference. Howard, great guy, charismatic, impressive. Heidi, grasping, self-important, not somebody you'd want to work with. And thereby, I think, revealing a kind of uh, double bind that women face quite frequently, that in the pursuit of competence, they almost have to run against the stereotype of acceptable femininity, which some might argue is what Hillary Clinton um, encountered um, during her presidential run. Well, interesting you raised Clinton there then, because, again, I want to get us back to Donald Trump, and none of that stuff seems to apply to Donald Trump. Does it? I mean, there's actually very nice work um, in some social psychologists, Steve Reicher and um, Alex Haslam, look at what it is that that Trump is able to do to um, sort of mobilise his audiences. So he says, don't they say, don't think of the audiences as as sort of um, ignorant or or stupid or or mad or bad. Instead, see him, whether consciously or not, being a very skillful entrepreneur of identity. And he has various ways of being not typical of his audience, but prototypical of them, and actually is able to try and conjure in them a sense that he is well motivated by breaking certain kinds of conventions. And actually, um, by setting up a sense of who the enemy is, whether it's the media and their fake news, whether it's um, China and globalization, and by showing that he's not a conventional politician, who's therefore potentially in it to... Um, for self-interest. He can flaunt the fact that he's so rich and um, lives this lavish, self-indulgent lifestyle. It actually creates in the audience who are willing to hear those messages a sense that actually he might have more credibility and trustworthiness, even if those of us who don't see him that way find that hard to imagine. But there's definitely a lot of those processes still going on. Um, I want to talk about gossip and the idea of gossip as you know, as a way of policing behaviour, like a sort of informal way of policing behaviour. Obviously, this has become incredibly sort of timely with the whole Me Too movement you know, happening. And, and a lot of these, you know, informal, you know, lists of transgressive men that have been revealed and things, you know, that were once these sort of informal networks that women would have to keep between themselves. But this was an effective way of of policing people's behaviour. Yeah. You talk in the book about gossip is something that's, you know, about 90% basically malign. Yeah, it's it's a it's very fascinating and it's I think comes back to the nature of um our kind of hypersocial natures. So, um there's a um, anthropologist called Robin Dunbar um who sort of talks about us having to operate at sort of larger scale than for example chimps. Chimps operate in sort of packs of 30 and can maybe kind of build their sort of social bonding through sort of, you know, grooming each other and so on. But once you sort of explode up to the numbers, 150, and then of course, way beyond that, for how humans interact, we need another mechanism for sort of testing out our reputations, for checking out for the free riders and so on. 
And the claim is that gossip was the instrument that that grew um, in our sort of language using skills to help us do that. Again, the the hypersocial animal needs to know who to trust and who you can't trust. And I think gossip is a very um, powerful mechanism for providing that kind of information. I think the other thing that's interesting about the um, Me Too movement and actually what gossip can do is it can generate what's called common knowledge. And common knowledge is to just be distinguished from shared knowledge. So let's say somebody is engaging with the, the lasciviousness of a Harvey Weinstein. And, they, and the rumours around the place are that they know and someone else knows um, that he does this kind of thing. That's sort of just shared knowledge. Common knowledge is a recursive explosion where not only I know and you know, but I know that you know that I know. So the, the example of this, the classic example, comes from the emperor's new clothes. You know, he walks in with these fantastic um, threads and it takes the little boy to say, but he's naked, to make that explosion that turns you from um, mere shared knowledge into common knowledge, which is why quite often dictators like to divide and rule. It's too powerful to have people speaking to each other. So so gossip and the willingness to be explicit can be a very powerful mechanism in, in reputation challenging and the reversal of power over those who have it over you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ziad Mara and we're talking about his book Judged, The Value of Being Misunderstood. And Ziad, I want to move us on to some ways in which, you know, we're all quick to judge people, but the truth is that we're really bad at it. You know, there's lots of ways in which we're incredibly fallible in our judgments of other people. And I'd like you to, well, actually, Ziad, no. Paul, tell us 
good example of this. Yes, well, you've, you've definitely put the hairs off of the back of my neck and reminded me of my alter ego, Paul, who um, still has a life somewhere, I imagine. He was the counterpart to Ziad in the sliding doors moment I had when I first tried to get into publishing, which is my day job. Um, I'd been trying for about eight months to get into publishing and I'm written over 100 applications, getting either rejection or silence and one interview for a job I didn't get. And then spoke to my dad, feeling slightly despondent, my Jordanian dad, who said, in a very matter-of-fact tone, it's your name. Ziad isn't going to cut it. You should use your Christian name, Paul. I was kind of shocked and taken aback to hear that, which I, in retrospect, wonder why, because not only did I know his own experiences, but I'd studied psychology and the whole question of implicit bias for three years before. Um, And yet, you know, eventually swallowed my pride and went for it. I made seven applications as Paul and got four interviews and, you know, can still remember sitting in in a room, you know, after doing an exercise where as the only person in the room, not even looking up when the interviewer comes in saying, we're ready for you now, Paul, not thinking it was me. Another job came up with the company that I still work for today, Sage, that um, had given me the interview the first time round. So I applied to that as the ad, and that's where my sliding moment doors moment came in because um, Sage offered a job to Ziad and Kingfisher Books, as it happened, offered a job to Paul and I had a moment to choose and I don't know what Ziad's up to now or Paul's up to now, but uh, I'm uh, very happy I made the choice I did working at Sage. So obviously implicit bias is very, very common. These, you know, people understand it and debate it. There's a lot of conversation about diversity, a lot in, in the publishing industry about how you could try and improve it. But the unconscious processes of our unreliable judgments were, you know, was something I experienced briefly then. I don't typically. I've got a white face and a voice that doesn't therefore make me suffer the indignities that a lot of people in minority groups have to. But it was a very sobering realisation that actually there's a big, big hill to climb for a lot of people. And it's not just um, um, implicit bias in that way. There are many forms of sort of unreliable judgment that um, that result from our inability to control. And that's, it's even more sinister than that as well, because let's talk about the idea of stereotype threat, mm. which is the fact that you know people that are you know prejudiced against can internalise that prejudice themselves. Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, there are lots of research that shows that um, even if you ask people to do a maths test and specify their gender at the beginning of it or their ethnicity, it will potentially change how they do on the test. You give it to young kids or you say that the test picks out um, sort of gender relevant abilities or whatever. It actually means that the person, as you say, in the kind of the group that has its uh, that's oppressed in one way or another has internalized those characteristics and therefore limits their own um, ability to to function so it is it is the, the problem of, of implicit bias is it's sometimes self-inflicted and i want to talk about the idea of um how you know how strong arian built sort of ideas of repulsion you call it the yuck factor yeah in the book as well in terms of making these sort of very quick snap judgments about people Yeah. So there's um, a lot of research from a relatively new uh, discipline known as moral psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, And the leader of that is a guy called Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, in in which actually he he did a lot to try and explain and discuss the culture wars in the US. Really, what he was doing there was showing that these sort of unconscious processes have various kinds of moral dimensions. And in particular, um, there is a relationship between um, our disgust sort of yuck flinch and then our sort of moral judgment, 
even though they are they ought to be quite distinct from each other but actually he demonstrates with a whole series of sort of vignettes um that he gets people to answer questionnaires on um you know so was it wrong for a family to eat their pet dog that had been run over earlier that day. If you try and sort of separate out things like uh, reactions around disgust and whatever, you can say, well, what actually got harmed and so on. And we can you know, debate the pros and cons, but there is something just about the strength of the disgust reaction that then feeds into moral judgment, um, which I think he's documented really well. I want to talk about the concept of moral look. What is that? It was coined by the philosopher Bernard Williams. And, and it's, again, um, another sort of feature of our strange way of judging each other. When you look at, you know, if I go back to um, saying that you're guilty of a transgression, I can ask myself, well, did you, did you intend the outcome? Or was it an accident? You know, my set, it ought to be a big difference to know whether you intended it or not. But strangely, um, my, most often we'll actually assess based on what the outcome was. So if I throw a brick over a wall and it lands harmlessly on the grass on the other side, I might have done something reckless. But the judgment and opprobrium I receive is going to be profoundly different if, in fact, by bad moral luck, it lands on a small child and damages that, that kid. The intention was identical, the action was identical, and yet the consequence leads then me to have and expect to have a profoundly different weight of judgment. And so there's a, there's a strange sort of um, uh, inconsistency that can happen there. And, and, the, and the, the psychologists play quite nicely with sort of toggling between how you change intention and you change the consequences to sort of bring out the rather sort of strange vagaries of, of how we respond to moral luck. You have a chapter in the book where you talk about ways in which we can try to live well without judgment, but also sort of outside of judgment, which you begin with this, you know, sort of idea common in in you know art and literature of the sort of wild child, the wolf boy. Tell me about that idea. Yeah. So the the context for that chapter is to say, well, you know, if I've started off talking about the fact that judgment is ubiquitous, it's sort of around and imposing itself on us, um, even if we sort of tend not to want to acknowledge that. And that actually, as judges, we're pretty bad at it and pretty unreliable. We're kind of condemned to being misunderstood a lot of the time. Then I think it conjures up a desire to break free of that judgment, a desire to imagine living outside as you say and one of the tropes used is the idea of the sort of feral child so the character of Mowgli in the Jungle Book um, is just one example there are kind of quite a few films have been made about and and that's sort of one one way of thinking about what escape from judgment might look like that is there a sort of primeval atavistic asocialized self that is the true us which doesn't have that sort of sort of being lost in the social mire attached to it on the other hand, there's another kind of way of thinking about forms of escape in the pursuit of sort of authenticity and creativity that's often attached to the idea of the sort of heroic artist who, you know, in Harold Bloom, the literary critic's phrase, is able to override the anxiety of influence. You know, the strong poet that needs somehow to kill off the the antecedents, the people who've put prior sentences into their mouths. And I think there's great um, creative power that's unleashed from that pursuit of freedom. I just think it's actually hopeless in the end. So I don't believe that one can, as a social animal, ever escape the mire and complexity of judgment. But I think there is something very powerful about the attempt to do so. Those ideas are explored in the, the novel The Human Stain by Philip Roth. And there's a, there's a very great close reading in this book of that novel. Tell us some of the ideas. Yeah. So uh, it's a book that's describing the life of a character called Coleman Silk. And... 
Coleman is a sort of professor in a small liberal arts college with a secret he's been carrying all his life. And the the secret is that he was born into a black family, but being light-skinned enough was able to pass, as they call it, to sort of go for white. And there was a point at which he um, abandoned his his sort of family and his that sort of identity in pursuit of and other kinds of life. And part of the driver of that was his pursuit of freedom, as I'm sort of talking about in this chapter, that sense of trying to overcome the various sort of arrayed judgments that um, his early life made him very conscious of. And I think it's a very powerful illustration of the complexities and difficulties that come from trying to overcome audiences. We've got, um, you know, the potent audience of his father and his brother and um, the the sense of betrayal of his mother, the various enormous sacrifices he had to make in order to try and and cut loose and cut free, and yet never really could. So to me, I, I thought there's actually, while I, on the one hand in this book, um, draw a lot on psychology and philosophy in ways that we've discussed, I do think there is enormous amount of sort of insight that can come from the sort of more anthropological eye of the literary novelist. And I think um, in The Human Stain, we get a brilliant worked example of the the complexities of trying to break free of judgment, and yet that, that it's an impossible task. Finally, then, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about our obituaries. Let's, the, the final chapter brings together this idea of, you know, a final judgment. And, and I want to talk, I want you to talk about the I guess the stories that we tell ourselves, not what other people think of us, but the stories that we tell of ourselves when we look back on who we were hmm. a long time ago. Yeah, because the, the pursuit of, of narrative and coherence um, sort of invites us to draw on sort of storytelling know-how to to sort of tell a coherent tale. And, you know, on one level, our lives have beginnings and middles and ends, and and so... Why not? But actually that pursuit of a sort of coherent story does actually play havoc with the facts. The facts are much more chaotic and not at all coherent. We are uh, many different selves at different stages in our lives. We are attached to different kinds of group identities, different ones of which, you know, how I am in the eyes of my father or my brother or my work colleagues um, or my kids um, or in or different audiences is radically different. And I think quite often we'll just do a sort of post hoc rationalization of our stories when in fact quite often there's a sort of emotional reality which is belied by those. But it's wonderful actually to see um, examples of how we sort of conjure up versions of uh, what feels like a kind of really you know, vivid turning points in our life, which in practice weren't like that at all. When I mean, you talk to people who were there at the time, it's like it's actually much more contested than that. So we kind of I, I say, you know, the subtitle of this book is um, The Value of Being Misunderstood. And this all this judgment that we're doing and the unreliability of it sort of does mean that we are misunderstood all the time. But it's also because we don't even really understand ourselves. Most of who we are is operating at a fairly unconscious level. And it sounds like a fairly bleak story, but I actually think there are some sort of more redemptive features of the fact that no one really understands us. I think that's a perfect point just to end on. So I've been talking to Ziad Mara. We've been talking about his book, Judged, The Value of Being Misunderstood. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Ziad, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thanks for having me on, Neil.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.